everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. Merry Christmas. Hope you guys are all having a wonderful Christmas day. Special present I have for you. Joining me is one of my favorite people, favorite writers, Christopher Cantwell, back on the show to chat about something you may not expect. Chris, welcome back. Hello. Thanks for having me, Jace. I'm excited to be here in this Christmas chaos slash miasma. Yeah. So for the last two years, listeners, if you've been with me that long, you know, Tom King was our, our Christmas guest on Christmas Day. This year, it's Christopher Cantwell. We're here to discuss the, uh, you may not have know, know this, the political instability in Peru. The president has been <laughs> ousted. Yeah, uh, man, it's a it's, serious deal. I think we just, I, we got we got to break this down over the next couple hours. <laughs> All right. Kidding. We're kidding. No, We're kidding I, wait, I've supplanted Tom as the Christmas guest. This is... Uh, yeah, just the way the scheduling worked out, Tom wanted to do it a lot, um, a lot earlier this year. So, and we certainly had a great chat. Uh, but man, you you've got a ton of books. So happy to have you. Uh, I'm, just, I'm always coming. Day. I'm always coming for Tom. Whatever I can, <laughs> in any way I can. That's what. I, that's my goal. Yeah. So I, God, I, I so I was putting together my notes and what do we want to talk about and everything. I was like, man, you really do have a lot of irons in the fire when it comes to comics and you know non comic stuff too. But but we're gonna focus on the comics. Um, and let's start with, let's start with your Iron Man run that finished up earlier this yeah. year, you know, issue 25. I think yeah. that was the last time you were on. That's what we talked about. Your, your, it was your upcoming Iron Man run. It had just started. Um, yeah. Wow. That was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah. So 25 issues yeah. and, you know, we, we covered all the issues on, on the show, obviously, and talked a lot about the fact that it was, it was a Tony Stark book, not an Iron Man book. And it was Tony getting back to basics. You really kind of tore him down so that he could be built back up. We've already had the first issue of the Jerry uh, Dugan run, which I really love the fact that Jerry really leaned into a lot of st- the stuff you had done with buying all the weapons and with Tony really. Yeah, he's got some to... plans for he, what, what he and I call. He and I have had some good phone calls about that, especially when I was like rolling off. This was like, uh, this must have been earlier this year. But like, yeah, like um, leaving what, what Rhodey calls the boom closet <laughs> in the last issue of my book and the boom closet is that is that just that warehouse full of everything tony bought with the ultimate goal of dismantling it but it's an inordinate task and will he be up to it but now he's got this boom closet full of uh very dangerous maybe arguably the most dangerous weaponry in the on earth at least if not the universe so he's got a bunch of stuff in there yeah, well, the other aspect of it is, you know, so many times we've seen Tony torn down, you know, broken down either from making poor choices with his addiction or, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting the crap kicked out of him by this villain or that villain. What's interesting is t- Tony may be mentally or spiritually in, in a really good place where you left him, but his fortune mm-hmm. is gone because he did buy all those weapons up. So it is yeah. sort of a back to basics approach for Jerry as well, which kind of mirrors what you did. Um how, how successful do you think you were in getting Tony back to kind of the hero we remember as opposed – and again, there's nothing wrong with this RDJ approach, this more flippant, right. um, sarcastic, de- self-deprecating Tony. But, you know, the Tony we grew up reading was a, a little more serious, and I, I feel like you've steered him back in that direction. How, yeah, how I mean, I think, think I was – I was actually – I was talking to Chris Condon, one of my favorite writers ever, um, yesterday. Was it yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. Um on his podcast, we were just really shooting the shit and we were talking about um, Danny O'Neill, 
on Iron Man. We were talking about Len Kaminsky on Iron Man. And I feel like those two guys were the biggest influence for me in terms of what I was trying to do. I think that like Denny just pushing, pushing, pushing deeper, deeper, deeper on Tony and seeing how far he could go. And I mean, like, you know, Denny's the guy that like put Tony into the cardboard box in an alley. Um, Len, Len, I think the what I love about Len was like that he had such an interesting kind of idiosyncratic tone um, that was not surreal, but sometimes strange, sometimes just kind of unexpected or um, like a syncopated pacing to his stories that ultimately they weren't they weren't um they weren't mathematical they weren't simple arithmetic it wasn't like a plus b equals c i think like lens stories are like a plus b equals you know abstract symbol and and now what you know like and i, I think that the structure of land and then like some of the content that denny did i was really really inspired by that to do what to do what i did but i think that like in terms of pulling Tony apart. I never, I never wanted to dismantle him. It was really just like the character's voluntary decision to re-examine, mm. you know, and, and as he's re-examining very quickly, the stakes of what's going on skyrocket to the point where he is struggling to keep up. And he's already a guy that moves so fast and so intently, like intensely um, that I, I wanted him to get caught up in that. And and I wanted his mind, which moves so quickly to get caught up in that. And for him to start making those snap decisions that he knows, I think because he's savvy enough, he knows they're going to come back and maybe bite him in the ass later, which they do. Mm-hmm. Everything from, you know, the morphine governor on his suit because his neck is broken and like just choosing to continue forward and, he knows his he knows his lesser demons. He's very familiar with them and he knows that he's going to have to answer to them down the road. But he's putting he's still going forward with that, not out of arrogance or megalomania, megalomania, but because he feels like he has to, like because there's so much on the line and the stakes are so high with Korvac at all. Right. So, um, you know, he just knows that he's going to have a lot of collateral damage to process after the fact, which he certainly does, I think, by the end of the books of Korvac. And then Source Control, which was the second act we did, which was much shorter with six issues. That one was really like, what does a fine-tuned, stripped-down, rebuilt Tony look like, and how does he operate? And so everything in Source Control, from his suit, from his operation, from the choices he makes to um even his mission statement i tried to write very clear like that he's he's like he's kind of like that i talk about this with with people who've been through similar things where it's like when you come out on the other side of rehab you have that kind of almost um intimidating wild-eyed sobriety and so he's attacking source control with that so like he's his eyes are so open that he's hitting it hard and clear and he's firing on all cylinders and and yes there's still going to be problems and setbacks and decisions that he's gonna to have to answer for later but he knows all that and he knows that's the cost of what he does and so there's like a confidence in that 
with him. And so when people call him on it, whether it be like Clayton Walker or um, Spymaster or, you know, even like uh, Riri, like he's like, this is how it goes. We know how we know the job we signed up for. We know we're going to have to answer for certain choices we make in the in the crucible of the moment. That's the way it is. And and like and and also just even going down into like showing him start to go down paths of like feeling sorry for himself for ruminations, self-diagnosis and catching himself and going, this is where I would normally do that and I need to park it and be cool. You know, and I saw I think source control was source control for me was like, what are this first six months out of rehab look like? And then it's a superhero story on top of that. Right. And 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 it has some Denny O'Neill kind of noir qualities, some rough edges to it, some like hard talk, um, some tough love. Um, and so those two I, those two books really answer each other. Like Books of Korvac is like taking a guy who is transcended i mean he is the he is kurtzweil's transcendent man at the beginning of that coming off of dan slot's book and going you know patsy makes fun of him for it but like okay who who am i exactly like new body virtual consciousness put back in that body am i the same guy if i am what does that mean what are the what are the most important cornerstones of who i am and i think he finds those but unfortunately, you know, just because of the situation he's in, he's still doing that soul searching and examination while having to deal with <laughs> a Marvel sized intergalactic threat. Right. So he starts making those Tony Stark snap decisions and he's still in the middle of soul searching. And so he just kind of becomes, I don't know, two thirds of the way through books of Korvac, a real kind of heady mess of pathology and neurosis and, um, self-flagellation and self-effacement and um, uh, self-isolation, dissociation, all those things, um, which is just, it's, it's you know, when you go on a personal journey, you've got to find yourself lost in the dark woods for a little while before you come out on the other side. And like, so I think those issues when like he's on the planet Megiddo and he's dealing with stilt man and, and, and um, some of those, some of those big decisions he makes in like 13 when he's really after Korvac. Um, it's the darkness before the dawn, you know, like that, that was the structure of the story. So I, ultimately I'm very happy with the story. I'm very happy like that. We got to do source control as a kind of coda answer of like that kind of wild eyed, clear eyed sobriety. When you have those tools and they're fresh after being through something so severe in recovery and 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 using them and using them effectively and also using them unflinchingly and also having the confidence when someone challenges what you're doing to say no like this is what i am this is why i'm iron man if you don't get it i'm sorry you know and so that was that was source control for me yeah and i think it really worked and what's interesting hearing you kind of break them down and you know reminding us of the influences of o'neill and kaminsky because you certainly see them and not, not to say that there's not some O'Neill influence in books of Korvac, but the thing about for both of these arcs for me, it's not just about who Tony is, but it's like who Tony is as as you put it in context with who he's going up against, right? Like the Kaminsky run, you're right. It, it is a little more esoteric, a little more out there. 
yeah. a lot of that I feel like is because he's fighting against a lot of like magical, like Fin Fang Foom and Mandarin yeah, and that sort fighting, of thing. What I like about Kaminsky is he's fighting against things that he does not have the tools to understand. Right. And like that to me, putting Tony on his back foot was very interesting. And like Korvac is maybe at once someone he has trouble understanding, but I think that's because Korvac is in so many ways a mirror image of what Tony could become if he's not careful. Right. So there's that trickiness where it's just like your biggest blind spots are, are, are your own self-identifying characteristics, you know? And so Korvac, and it's also, also the idea that my writing partner, Chris Rogers, he says this a lot, which I, I appreciate, which is like, we have such antipathy for the things we see in others that we actually recognize in ourselves and so I think some of his deep-seated anger and frustration and even, I think, at times, hatred of Korvac stem from how he feels about himself. And it takes him a while to realize that, you know? So do you think as a, you know, with, with these choices of, of going up against source control and going up against Korvac and the context it gives us for who Tony is when he's facing those particular antagonist regardless of whether it's a superhero book and maybe it's more apparent when it's a superhero book because it's more apparent who the the bad guy is the antagonist Mm -hmm. but in storytelling when you want to explore a certain something do you do you think it's the context of the antagonist who you choose you know what the challenge is that you're giving the characters that kind of drives what you want the exploration to be so let me rephrase it if you want to explore a certain something with a certain character is it the challenges they face that give you the context to explore that? Or is it like kind of the personality or the journey of the character in and of themselves? I think it's both. I think like I'm always very careful to choose who the antagonist is going to be in all the books I do. I think like Horvac was like, he had so many similarities and there was such a Venn diagram around him and Tony that it felt really right to to do that, right? Like it felt right to do that story. And also what was interesting about Korvac is that he he had he he professed to want to make the world a better place. And that like linchpin similarity with Tony was more important than any of the like techno savvy this or whatever, right? It was like it was like, no, like, I want to create a utopia. Like, that's that's who Korvac was. He just was so single-minded about it. And to him, the means justified the end. And ultimately, like, his own emotions, I think, got in the way, right? And his own um, anger and arrogance and all of that stuff. And we've seen the exact same kind of story be told with Tony. So when it comes to two guys going toe-to-toe, those two guys made sense to me a lot. But I mean, in other books, like like, like in Gold Goblin right now, there's two people that Norman is going up against. And one is the new Jack-O-Lantern, who, you know, has essentially, I think, admitted in run in a run previous to this book that like he stole he cribbed the Jack-O-Lantern gear from Norman. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's a there's a and jack o' lantern because you you know if you go into the hierarchy of goblins you've got green you've got hobgoblin you've got all the people who 
were those things. And then you've got Jack-O-Lantern, who is like the facsimile of the facsimile, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so there's like, why, why did, why did the guy, the current guy who's, who is um, Jack-O-Lantern, why is he, why did he pick Jack-O-Lantern? And I, in my book, it's, he picked Jack-O-Lantern because of Norman. And we're going to get into that, into the why. And so there's like, there's disciple elements, there's protege elements, there's, there's, you made me want to be a certain thing and that thing is not good. And I think that like, those kind of foil characters are super important. And make, just make the story a character immediately, right? Where like, like I think in in Bill Goblin 1, like Norman derides Jack-O-Lantern as like just being, he's no goblin at all. I think that's what he says, right? Um, Because he's not Roderick. He's not Ned. He's not, he's not Jason Masondale for Christ's sake. I mean, like, it's like when you're not even Jason Masondale, you know, like, but then, but then that dismissal is the precise thing that somebody who looks up to Norman hates and doesn't want to be labeled as and can drive him really over the edge, you know, and in like, and, and, you know, United States of Captain America, very similar, like who are those bad guys? You know, it was, it was literally a warrior woman who had, you know, she was the other successful version of the so- super soldier serum. So I try to do a lot of mirroring when it comes to who the antagonist is going to be in the book, right? It's the mirroring and then where those antagonists are finding our protagonists at that given point in their story, right? So with Tony, it's like, I'm rebuilding. I'm putting the man back in Iron Man. And here comes this guy who's like, I'm going to be God. And of course, Tony has flirted with the idea of wanting to be God before. And sometimes I think he's even come out and said it that he could be. Um, But he's trying on this new idea of humility, which is something that's totally alien to Korvac, right? Um, So I think like putting those two guys together, not just those two guys, but at that time, that to me is what makes it interesting, right? Like that's what makes it the main event. You know, I talk about this all the time that like comics are so much soap opera and wrestling at the same time. But like it from like the best wrestling matches are like, sure, Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, NWA Hulk, whatever, you know, like pick your people. Roddy, my favorite, right? Like, but it's like, what are they, what is the context for them entering the ring for that match? Mm-hmm. That's key, right? It's not just like Roddy status quo. It's like Roddy off this failure and needs to prove himself X. And here comes the person that has always ground him down and, you know, talked down to him and infantilized him. And, and wouldn't you know it in this match, it's the, it's the match where Roddy becomes the most violent because he's so against wanting to, to be portrayed a certain way by some big winner. Yeah. That's That's interesting that you bring that up because, like, here's the thing, especially I'm glad you brought up wrestling because that's a perfect kind of analogy for it. For you know, superhero comics, yeah. Yeah, well, when we talk about what what draws us in, what's compelling, it's storylines, right? Like, like look at like look at a football game, right? Like an NFL game. Yes. It's just a physical contest. My team against your team, who's got the better physical skills? But when that's presented as entertainment, right, what do the networks do? They always look for a storyline, you know, like, oh, this, yeah, this player's going back to his old team or – yeah. This guy's trying to overcome an injury or this guy got shot in the knee and now he's coming back for the first time. It's the storyline, <laughs> right. right? I mean, that's yeah. what pulls people in. 
Well, it's the, you know, it's the my favorite baseball game of all time, game seven of the 2016 World Series, the Chicago Cubs, where they really, it didn't feel like they were playing the other team. They felt like they were playing the cosmos. Right. right? And it's like yeah. every step, incremental step forward, there was one back. And it just, it, it, even when Aroldis Chapman is like pitching those closing innings, it's like, you just don't know. And like, yep. it's what is meant to be. And like that, that is the transcendence of even sports stories. And I think if you can pull that off in comics too, or any story, you know, like that's when it genre, genre storytelling, which I think wrestling is genre storytelling too, yep. right? Like, it's like, you can pull that off. It's like, holy shit. Like there's, there's a catharsis, not just a win, but a catharsis. Yeah. And even the catharsis can come in a loss. Mm-hmm. That's just as potent and powerful as a catharsis that comes in a win. You know? Yeah. Sometimes more, sometimes more emotional. We yeah, all know human nature. Course, you, you know, there's a lot yeah. of comic fans who are like, why does the character lose all the time? We just put him through the ringer and he shouldn't be beaten up like this. He deserves so much more. And it's like, that is the precise exact feeling. But at the same time, like, uh, you know, I love it when people online are like, they must hate this character. And it's like, no, I love this character more than some family members of my extended family, (laughs) which is why I want to see them experience pain because I experience pain and often when I experience pain, I can't make heads or tails of it. So let's write an ordered dramatic story where someone experiences pain and is able to process it or not process it, but like tragically and 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 come out on the other side with strength or wounds or change or things like that, you know? Yeah, evolution for sure. Is that what draws you to Norman? You know, you, you mentioned the gold goblin. Um hmm. And you've, you've done some epic work with villains. Obviously, your Eisner-nominated Dr. Doom run comes to mind. Norman's so interesting, you know, with what Spencer Nick Spencer did in his uh, Spider-Man run, Sin Eater, removing his sins. And you, yeah. you mentioned he's got a couple antagonists in this series. I'd almost throw another one in there. He's going up against his own guilt for the things oh, that he's yeah. done the in the past. One, the number one antagonist in Norman's book is his guilt. And the thing with that book, and since it's out, I feel like I can talk about this, but like, you know, I talked about with Nick Lowe and Zeb, like, what is this? Like, and the Sin Eater, which I was so happy to see that character come back, like Spencer bringing Sin Eater back was like, just awesome. And we need a Marvel Legends figure of Sin Eater. I don't know if they'll make a Marvel Legends figure with a shotgun, but like, it was like, okay, he took his sins away, but it immediately you don't want it to be that simple. Mm-hmm. And so for Norman the things I touched upon immediately in my pitch were if you take Norman Osborn's sins away, there are so many sins. What's left? <laughs> like literally what's left of that guy. Right. So you're walking, you got a guy who's walking around. Who's like a shell trying to fill it desperately with some good things. He also, it would make sense to me that if his sins are taken away, it would be now the first time that he feels horrible and has a conscience about what he did. Right. Like because you can make an arguments about Norman sociopathic, all this stuff, um, sadistic, at least whatever. But like that's gone now. So like he just feels terrible. And so it was also like what would compel him forward to be a hero? And for me, the, the immediate answer was guilt. It was just like the immediate answer was just like my whole life is off. I've done awful things my whole life. I am desperate to not die 
as just the sum total of my actions, even if I, the sins of those things are removed from me, like that's how I'm known. And so what else can I be? And so there's almost like a desperate kind of momentum behind his heroing that feels very realistic where it feels like, and especially in the first few issues, like he's running away from memories, running away from guilt. He's running away from conscience. He's running away from, um, things that remind him of the past. And so, you know, when it comes to the people he's up against, I mentioned Jack-o'-lantern, but like, of course the the one that I think that of my, I love writing her, but like the person he's up against other than Jack-o'-lantern, like the real big bad of our first five series arc is Queen Goblin, right? right? Which is the manifestation of all of his sins. And also, you know, inhabiting the body of a woman he used to work with. Um, so, like, I, I just think that that is very compelling. And so, and the whole book is very internal because, like you said, the biggest antagonist is Norman's mind. And so, Lan Medina, his work is so internal. Like, we, he did an issue of Iron Man where, like, they, like, he and Patsy went to this kind of liminal space in maybe, in maybe in Tony's mind. And so, like, he's doing a whole book like that where it feels like, the the person Norman's at war with more than any of the crazy things going on in dark web, more than queen goblin, more than uh, the manifestations of Gwen Stacy as his guilt, um, like difficult conversations with Peter, Ben, you know, as chasm, like any of that stuff, like he's a jack-o'-lantern, like he's, they're all just avatars for the roiling nature of his own mind. His mind has been, his sins have been cleansed. And so his mind has been grossly destabilized, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, like you said, if, if anybody in the Marvel universe kind of embodied sin, that's what filled him up. That's what motivated yeah. him. That's what gave him purpose. You know, those, those machinations, those puppet strings that he was always pulling. And without that, who is he? And that's, seems like that's what he's trying to, uh, to discover it. And it's fascinating. It also seems like really good timing for, for this to tie into dark web, um, because that's kind of an esoteric, story you know with chasm and um and yeah, that, that prior one too because chasm what i like about chasm what i like about chasm and what i like about the goblin queen not to be confused with the queen goblin <laughs> uh is what they're doing with ben is brilliant what i think woodseb's doing with ben is brilliant is like they took away too much right and what's going on with norman is they took something they took the cancer away the spiritual cancer away and they might have created more of a problem inside the guy. And with Ben, they took away certain things and they took away too much. And now he's he's um, he's unhinged. Right. And like and uh, Ashley Kafka was given too much. Right. And she's now Queen Goblin. And, and we talk about this further in the book. I don't want to spoil anything about like what's actually going on with her and Norman Sins, but like they giving her too much and like uh you know gene gene's clone and madeline uh uh madeline Pryor, right madeline Pryor? yeah yeah, Pryor, yeah like yeah. just like also taken from and given something in return that it's like being saddled with something so all these characters are kind of burdened mm-hmm. in a way that i think is fascinating um, through the story. Yeah. It, I, again, when, it's, when I heard you were doing it at San Diego, I'm like, oh, he's taking on Norman Osborn. I'm, I'm totally in. 
I can't wait to see uh, what happens. Cause again, it, I mean, this is a guy that's been a villain for a long time and I'm not always the, a fan of taking a villain and turning him into a, a hero. No, but and like, look, that's, and, 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 that's yeah. not necessarily what's going to happen with, with Norman. Like I'm fascinated. Yeah, I think it's, and it's, again, it's like people talk about this and they're like, nothing like, you know, the term is, I, I'm sure you've seen it too, but it's like nothing in comics sticks. Well, that's because it's like a malleable medium and that's mm-hmm. why it's amazing and resilient. And we continue to tell these stories. Um, but like, you know, certain things stick and I think people realize that, but like, I don't know what's going to happen with Norman and it's going to be, for, it's going to be a while. I know that. And like Zeb has plans and, and, and the editorial office has plans. Um, but like the only way I know how to write that story is he's 150% committed to doing it right. Yeah. Are his motivations pure all the time? No, I think that's what makes it interesting. Um, but the arc of him in these first five issues in my book is like him discovering what does it mean to truly help someone, right? Heroing is easy if you're just beating the shit out of the shocker on the street. Yeah, right. But like heroing is something else entirely if rather than annihilating your adversary or or um, standing victorious over them with a boot on their neck, like what is it to, what is it, mean to actually help someone which is such an alien concept to norman and in three he's really he's going to start to really unpack that and be like whoa what if the really radical thing i did was not put on a gold suit and kick ass but like reach out to someone see them eye to eye and go i can help you that's a new thing for norman osborne to do and like especially norman osborne because i've talked to I talked about this, like some people have asked me questions like the difference between Norman and Doom and Norman is like, like Doom has a nobility or at least he has a code. He's done some truly horrible things, but he he can fall into the antihero category, especially lately in the last like 25 years or so of the way he's been written. But like and he's also like a true villain, but they're really like this decisions made out of necessity in Victor's mind. Whereas Norman, the decisions are made out of cruelty. Right. And that to me is the the difference between those two guys where it's what makes Norman taking nothing away from doom, but it makes Norman infinitely more twisted and vile as a human being motivated by emotions of hate and spite that, I mean, un, you know, that's what we've been doing. I mean, like that's what we're doing in our book is unpacking that, you know, and that, that's hard work. And, but I, the only way I know how to do it is to do it absolutely sincerely, have Norman be absolutely sincere in his desire to do so and come what may, you know, because if it, if it goes the other way eventually, well, then I feel like that choice will be all the richer because we weren't waffling around and dancing and winking right. around at the camera and going, well, but actually, you know, like, and if he sticks, if it sticks for a while, if it sticks for years, then like it's hard earned, you know? Yeah. And with, no, with, Norman, it's it, that story has kind of been told to with Secret Empire. You know, he's he's pretending to be, you know, because it's all in his self interest and it's it's about amassing power. And yeah, I'm gonna put together my own Avengers and I'm gonna be in charge of Shield and and that kind of thing. Where really we always knew that he was still the bad guy deep down. Um, and right. Didn't an, even necessarily. Amb- yeah. There's an ambition necessarily- in Norman. There's an ambition in Norman. I think that, like Doom, Doom will happily acquire if it suits his larger vision 
Norman will acquire entirely out of ambition and greed. Yeah. Right. And self-serving interest in a way where it's like, well, I know that ultimately whatever he builds here at the end of the day is all to service him and whatever he wants to get done. Yeah, exactly. I guess you could say the same thing about doom, but like doom, the biggest doom for the biggest thing for me with doom. And I talked about this since the beginning of doom is like, he loves his people. Mm-hmm. sometimes he imprisons and tortures them <laughs> because they speak out against his grand plans but like he loves Latveria and he believes himself a better ruler of Latveria than most who have come down the pike and the truth is is that the Fantastic Four believe the same thing they helped install him or reinstall him back in the 80s as the leader of Latveria because the more progressive uh, goofball was was blowing it and putting people in jail with secret police and you know putting sedition acts in place where you couldn't speak out against him and like doom didn't do that because he didn't need to it was like you spoke out against doom then your history right so like stabilizing like, like the fantastic four actually did like a nation building storyline that i think is kind of fascinating and uh radical and controversial um in that way as much as they love to give Victor a hard time. They're like, ah, let's put him back on the throne. That's amazing power for a villain to have where, you know, your, your, your greatest adversaries go, no, you know what? You're right. You should be in charge. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Uh, Again, both Norman, both doom classic Marvel villains at times have, you know, worn a different hat, you know, maybe not been quite so villainous and another one that, that kind of suits that. And I don't even know. I mean, I wouldn't even call him a villain, but I wouldn't necessarily call him a hero either, but he's certainly one of the most complex characters in the Marvel universe that you're also taking on right now is Namor. Yeah. Story set in the future, conquered shores, the, the, world of the Marvel universe 616 has been flooded. Uh, Cree, uh, was it Cree scroll war, um, attacked earth, ice poles melted. Uh, but you're bringing in a lot of classic characters. We, we've seen obviously Namor who, who again, a lot of these characters even existed before Marvel was Marvel. Uh, Mm -hmm. we have the Jim Hammond version of human torch. And then in this latest issue that came out last week, Another classic uh, character from the Bronze Age, early Bronze Age, the monster, Frankenstein. Yeah, Frankenstein. That was a big surprise. So how much fun was bringing him into the book? A blast. I was so excited when Tom Brevoort said that was okay. Because you know what? And I was actually talking to somebody online about this today. Those, that book, that book is so elemental. And I think that stretches back to the timely era of Namor and Jim going at it, fire and water, right? And and then I wanted to bring more elemental, you know, pieces into that puzzle because if if the future is what it is and it's on the brink and kind of broken, then what things are reduced to are factions and very simple kind of elemental points of view. So, you know, for me, it was like, who's going to be the voice of our of our human beings on the surface who refused to bend a knee to Atlantis. And to me, that was like Luke Cage just felt perfect. Mm-hmm. Whereas like a natural leader, somebody who's not going to go to space and fight a bunch of bullshit space wars. He's going to stay, he's going to protect people. Um, 
and he has antipathy with Namor, right? So like I was always looking for those connections to Namor as well. Um, and then, you know, who's going to be the voice of reason among people who say, you know, we should make good with Atlantis and we should we should try to help Shepard through this vision of living underwater, even though we breathe air. And that person felt like Steve Rogers, right? Who has a very strong connection to Namor through the Avengers, through the Invaders, through the all-winner squad, you know, back in the day. Like all that, 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 that felt important to me. And then, you know, um, on the, on the water side, like, and on the Atlanta side, I wanted people like Atuma, who used to be an adversary of Namor, who is now like kind of the secretary of defense, you know, or, or you know, like chief head of the military, um, who they, those two guys don't get along. There's a lot of antipathy, but like, you know, the idea of like Atlantis as the supreme power on earth, like we're here, let's stop looking backwards. And and to an extent, Namorita, his cousin being on the throne saying, you know, we're here. This is, this is what you fought for your whole life. And why are we now wasting resources, wasting time, looking back, trying to get the dregs of these people off the surfaces, people who have always been against us, who refuse to accept our help, refuse to accept the new reality. Um, you know, she's not all the way at let him die, but like, uh, they're pretty close. And the, and the only reason that made sense to me in tract was because they are all students of Namor's POV when it comes to the balance of power on Earth. You know? Yeah, but the but thing about Namor that... himself was the one who was angry with the surface, distrusting mm -hmm. of the surface, aggressive with the surface, always worried about the interests of the, the people that he oversaw in Atlantis. And that point of view has very much permeated throughout the Atlantean Empire by the time our story takes place. And well, what's so interesting when you, go ahead. is that that was that was Namor's identity. That was his his motivation. That was his impetus. Why he did what he did. He got a lot of you know his people to buy into it. But now the war's over. They won. You know, if you yeah. want to call it a war, you know, regardless yeah. of them being responsible, the Kree being responsible, or whomever. So now it almost feels like in the story you're telling, Namor's got this this purpose, this mission to find Jim Hammond, to find what's going on, to save what surface dwellers are left, because he's trying to identify who who he himself is, his self identity through his actions. Because I don't think he he doesn't come across as somebody who knows who he is anymore. No, and I think that he's always been such a person of action that he he is someone who um. He is someone who has acted, he's been so reactive and so kind of dynamic in the way that he's addressed problems facing Atlantis and his own desires that now, I mean, again, I mean, it's funny to even come back to this, but like, it's a little, it's a little Tony Stark going, who am I, right? Like, what is my legacy? What do I want my legacy to be? Do I want it to be that I I I railed against the the surface and when they finally went extinct, we celebrated? I think he's feeling weird about that because one, he's half human. And two, he has so many close colleagues and people he's known and friends 
if Neymar can have friends, uh, that he's connected to, that he doesn't want to let go of. And it, part of that is literally also not wanting to let go of the past, right? I mean, some of that is there in there. Or also um, redefine the past. I think Neymar is going out saying the human torch might be able to help us figure out the fuel problems of the uh, oxygenated settlement under the water. But the truth of the matter is, is he's holding a referendum on himself and his legacy. You know what I mean? Like, that's really what he's up to. And that's a tough thing to do. And I think that he is, to his credit, I think what I've always loved about Neymar is he's unflinching, even when it comes to the opinions of himself. Sure, he can be arrogant and he can he can say, you know, I was right here. Like, my opinion is right. I can fight through those things. But, like, he can also have these kind of amazing, noble moments of holding himself to account that you might not see in a character like like his sometimes buddy, sometimes enemy, Dr. Doom, right? And so that's what that's what separates him out. And I think he's really in that reflective place. It's fascinating because as you said, uh, you know, he, he is such a guy of action. And if he doesn't know who he is and he's in this context, yeah, am I going to go back to the past? Am I going to give myself a mission to try to define myself? L- let me try it all. Let me throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And yeah, yeah and he, but he also can't help but control his natural reactive emotional impulses, which is like you know, by episode two, he's like, you know, he's basically like fucking Jim, you know, like yep, <laughs> doing something. I don't trust him. Like he's just that guy, and he is, he is, a, he's got some insecurities that that lead him to a place of profound mistrust and and it, it, there's something about jim hammond that has always always pushed his buttons more and better and worse than than anybody else he you know has encountered over the years and so that and that to me goes back to the elemental piece of the book too right which is like jim there are factions like where if if luke if luke is on the surface well that's one aspect of humanity and that's kind of like what is left of earth right and earth as we know it in terms of like earth as the surface and like cap is like what's what how can we evolve that and then namor is obviously atlanta well namor is actually all of them he's kind of torn between all of them but like atuma and namorita are like the sea is what is now Mm -hmm. right like everything else is past let's focus on what is now Let's move on. And then you have Jim, and Jim is leading a faction of, is perhaps, you know, connected to a faction of machines. Machines whose uh, motives are, you know, as of issue issue three, still fairly unclear <laughs> in terms of what they want. Do they want coexistence? Do they want to take over? What it, What is all of that? And Neymar has never been one to share. So I think right, that true. all of his, all, like, as he has this referendum on himself, he finds himself um, falling prey to his old paranoia, for lack of a better word, right? Or, or um, selfish, selfish point of view, you know? Yeah, I'm 
very yeah, curious to see how it's all gonna play yeah, out. Yeah, and then and then Frankenstein's monster, who I was very excited to bring in here. Frankenstein's monster is somebody who is. What I love about Frankenstein is that, well, one, I just love the character and the way that Marvel portrayed him over the years. He's kind of this anti-hero, and he still is this anti-hero. But Frankenstein's monster is like, he's a person. He is also very much not a person. So he has that in common with Jim. There's a moment coming up, not even to spoil too much, but like where him and Jim see eye to eye. And it's like human ambitions are what led to the creation of monsters like us. Right. Mm-hmm. Torch is very much that. Frankenstein is very much that. Um, but Frankenstein is also there very much as kind of a. Um, like fucking, uh, you know, like the in, in the seventh seal, like the, you know, death. Death, who is there to watch over and see what's going to happen. Um you know, he is death and life at the same time. And like, he's also, you know, if you talk about the elements, if you have fire and you have water and you have machines and you have people and you have Atlanteans, then, you know, he represents something still else that like can't even be explained, you know? Yeah, such a brilliant choice for kind of the champion of of, of the human point of view, right? Like, Hey, he's got, he still has humans that can procreate under his protection, you know? Yeah. Which leads more into the, like the the paranoia of like, who's behind, like, was it the Kree's weapon and the changing climate that made it so that people can't procreate? Or is there something more sinister at play and whose fault is that? And then whose real fault is that? um, Given the legacy and kind of mission statement of the Atlantean empire at that time, you know, I think that, it's really like it's really Namor looking around and going. Um, he's reaping what he's sowed mm-hmm. over the last hundred years, right? That's really what's going on with him. Yeah, again, fa- fascinating because is he a hero? Is he a villain? Again, I just think he's always Namor. You know, it's just his arrogance and his impetuousness. He sort of those labels in a way where he is kind of a god. If there was an earthbound god, right, in the Greek sense, like these people who just kind of hung out with humans and did these things and sometimes were attracted to other people's wives on the Fantastic Four, right. you know, like, yeah. he's that guy, you know, he kind of, he kind of seemed at once above petty human hero villain conflict. And then also very much embroiled in it in a way he couldn't escape or maybe even didn't want to escape. Right, like guy, guy, join the Avengers for Christ's sake. You know, he's like, yeah, let's do it. But I mean, like, what were his ulterior motives? I think that was always at the at the core of that character. I just think he's an endlessly fascinating character. I also think it's no coincidence that Marvel gives me all the megalomaniacs. Right? <laughs> they give me, they give me Tony, they give me Namor, they give me Victor, they give me Norman. They're like, what can you do with this guy? And it's like. I, I sometimes I, I get insecure. I'm like, what is it about me? And where they're like, can you humanize this uh, absolute uh, control freak who's wildly brilliant? It's like, sure, I guess so. You know? Well, you did get somebody that's a little more stable, not necessarily in that same vein, uh, but maybe it's, I mean, entirely different universe. Uh, you got to write Obi-Wan. That was a, yes. a bucket list item, right? Yes, that was crazy. And that was that was an amazing thing. And I was actually just talking about this last night, like how Obi-Wan 
Obi-Wan is like a thing I I I can't even articulate how amazing that was to do. That book was funny because that book came out of so Mark Paniccia, who's the editor for Star Wars, he and I tried to get like a crazy ass Deathlock book off the ground. Like I like a 70s Three Days of the Condor, like Clute. I'm in. Um, MK Ultra kind of insane deathlock thing uh, put together to the point where like Marvel editorial was like, this is insane. Like what, like, what are you guys doing? And so ultimately it didn't go anywhere, but like he came back to me with Obi-Wan. He's like, we're going to do Obi-Wan. And what was cool about it was do these vignette short stories, create an anthology and have him look back on his life. And what I liked about that challenge was that we had never really seen stories where Obi-Wan had fully looked back on his life. You get intimations of it in New Hope and the way he delivers lines, you know, to Luke about mm-hmm. not being called Obi-Wan for a long time and like the way he portrays Luke's father's death and, you know, certain things like what I told you was true from a certain point of view. Like, but we never had the guy in his own words really go, man, what was all that shit? That was crazy. Yeah. Like growing up in a temple without my parents, um, you know, being a Padawan and working with this kind of, uh, you know, to use your word, like esoteric older guy who was very strange. Um, and then all of a sudden being embroiled in uh, a war whose scope and violence I could have never even comprehended at the start of my days as a youngling in the New Republic, right? Like, or in the, in the Old Republic, like just not... And then, and then out of that coming the schisming and loss of the best friendship I ever had in my life. So, I mean, I think the book, that book for me was like very much elegiac in the way that he looks back on things, but it's not an elegy in the way that he's done because the last story is him just continuing to operate with those basic heroic principles, even for people that he you know, otherwise might have ignored or that other people might have otherwise ignored um, that he just at his core remains a good person, an active good person and a hero. But it's a hero who's been through some through some real shit. You know what I mean? Like a hero who in a lot of ways has a lot of emotional scars. I mean, and I think I've met I've said this in previous interviews, but like he is the character more than any character in Star Wars who is just emblematic of fortitude mm-hmm. you know it's fortitude like the that guy just keeps going and like that alone is a heroic act considering all the shit he's been through and you know that's that's who he is and so like being able to write that was i mean shit that was a dream come true that was an amazing project i was so happy to work on that yeah and he he's a character the thing that defines obi-wan for me is the the fact that it's not so much that he keeps going he keeps going despite the fact that he has made mistakes. You know, he did, yeah. he did make mistakes with, uh, with Anakin, obviously he, he, he has flaws. He knows he's human. He's not perfect. And despite that, you know, despite everything, uh, he keeps going. It's, it's, it's yeah, almost he, in spite of those mistakes. He keeps flaws, moving forward. His flaws in a lot of ways are almost a relentless optimism and hope. Right. What's funny about the title of the, the first movie in relation is at least to Obi-Wan, which is like, you know, he's as, as shitty as things can get. 
he can turn around and go, wow, maybe today things will turn around. And like yeah. that, that is a heroic power more than any kind of force ability, right? Like yeah. it also can be a huge liability. Um, and I think that that's, that's important too, you know? Well, from Obi-Wan to uh, another cosmic story that you finished up recently, you want to talk about flaws and maybe <laughs> the most human characters you've ever written with the blue yeah. flame uh, over at yes. Vault, which was a story that I that I just loved. Um, and it certainly didn't finish with a, a nice, neat, you know, tied up ending, put a bow yeah. on it. It's it's done. Uh, what was the, the reader reaction? I mean, I know you have your your fans that follow you regardless of of what you're writing, what you're working on. It's funny, like my, the fan reactions, I don't really have fan reactions. I don't feel like I have those, but like, um, especially for something as small as Blue Flame, but like, I feel like the reactions to the end of that book, I always, I had the end, I had the end of that book from the beginning. Um, Like I knew, I knew that that was where I was going to want to go. I knew I was going to want to be ambiguous with it. Um. That said, I was actually surprised. So, um, and he won't mind me talking about it. My my other, my other uh, comic slash baseball friend buddy, is a guy named Tad um, Eggleston. I don't know if you know Tad. He does twenty two yeah. panels. Uh, okay, I'm familiar with that. Not, yeah, not... so he's he's great. I mean, he's baseball nut. I've actually been trying to get the two of you together for a while, but uh, <laughs> super baseball guy. But um, he wrote me, I don't know, at like seven in the morning the other day. And he was like, I just did, I just did uh, Blue Flame 10, the last one. And he's like, I thought it was really beautiful. And he was like, I, I thought, you know, it, it made me feel good. It was something I needed this week. And I, and it was funny. I was like, you know, the final verdict comes through of what's going to happen to people and it's never explicitly stated what that is. You just have the main character going, uh, things are going to be fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, I said, why do you think that things are going to be fine? And Tad was like, I choose to believe that. He was almost like, I felt like it was up to me. And then I talked to my wife, who's, you know, more than my wife. She's a literature professor and a doctorate here at the school we live at. And she teaches literature. And she was like, I really liked the ending to Blue Flame because it felt like it had hope to it. And I was actually kind of floored by that. I was like, really? And I said, well, you know, it's not it's not clear exactly what's going to happen. And she was like, oh, I know. But I chose to have the hope, to take the hope from it. And I thought that it was really interesting that people kind of felt open to accepting the ending they wanted to accept and and i listen i couldn't tell you i couldn't sit here and tell you what mine is because i wrote it but like that book was very much born out of a very dark despair about the the way the world was working and shit this was before the pandemic this was before (laughs) a lot of things and so um i don't know i found it kind of wild that that people felt that way um but also I also felt like, oh, maybe I didn't write as depressing a book as I thought I did. <laughs> well, it definitely was dark at times. Yes. But I, I, I kind of the way what I took away from it was kind of what we were just talking about with Obi Wan. You know, no matter how dark it is or what mistakes you've made in the past, 
if you could just keep going, you know, that, that you've, you're in the battle, you're in the fight. If you can just keep getting up and, and, and you can take that either as the individual, you know, with what Mm -hmm. Sam went through and his trauma and he kept going despite having the weight of the world on his shoulders, you know, it's this galactic trial for those not familiar with the story and Sam's charged with defending the human race. Um, so you can look at it individually or you can look at it as, as, you know, societal or as a species, right? Like as bad as things get, we're going to keep having babies. Maybe the next generation will get it right. Maybe That's exactly get... it. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is that that book came out and I've been writing that book forever. And I, I pitched that book to, to Adrian at vault. I want to say in 2019 and you know, this is before the pandemic. Was it 2019? Holy shit. Yeah, because yeah, then we built it. We built it up over 2020. We got Adam on board. We got Kurt Hass. But like, I wasn't. I I had my kids, and that really wasn't even really a, a an issue of it. I I obviously had been through having a kid and what that means, especially in the world of today. But like, like it was. It didn't feel like that was such a central piece. And then when I turned in that last issue, and especially when I saw Adam's art and, you know, coming off of having our third kid, which was not planned <laughs> um, this year, there, there was, there was a lot of that too, which is like having a child being a wholly selfish act, but one that is absolutely so beautiful and selfless at the same time. And this whole idea that I come back to, which is a Michael Chabon concept that I ripped off and I, but I put it in every book I think I write, which is that it's even in Namor, which is that like, if we don't believe in a future, there never will be one. Mm -hmm. Right. And what better kind of incarnate symbol of the future than a child. And, you know, regardless of what happens to that child, even if it's in the next few pages of the end of blue flame, the act of having it, is there's almost a Zen quality of the noble task will never be completed, but that does not mean that we should not attack and attempt the noble task every day of our lives and translate that into whatever you want. Enlightenment, enlightenment, unattainable enlightenment, just, you know, out out of your fingertips, Um, you know, the noble task of peace of mind or, um equilibrium in the self equilibrium on the earth whatever it is that we'll never get there but it doesn't mean we shouldn't wake up and try and i think that the waking up and trying especially for characters like sam and the other characters in milwaukee in the blue flame that's the heroic act that's the most heroic act in the book is waking up and doing your day that to me feels like that's the heroism of the blue flame yeah, man, we're all of us that lived through 2020 and 2021 yeah. with the nonsense. Yeah, we're all we're all heroes in my still, book. We're man. still fucking going with it where it's just like, mm, what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. And and sticking on the, the cosmic theme, uh, you have Star Trek Defiant coming up soon. Yeah. Uh, you know, we just had er, er, earlier, one of the earlier 12 days of the comic source episodes. I hope everybody got to listen to was a chat with Jackson Lansing and and Colin Kelly. Talking about those, their those two assholes on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> had those two guys on t- talking about Star Trek, talking about what they're doing. Worf's in their book now. 
Uh, they mentioned it's going to spin out into Defiant. They they mentioned uh, the the creative team on Defiant just killing it. So it's not out yet. We don't want to spoil. But what what can you uh, what can you tease for people, uh, especially Star Trek fans? Star Trek, I I I that is the one book I've said this a few places, but like I will say it again. Like you know, I don't I I don't like I don't like chasing stuff. It's probably my pride that gets in the way, but like I won't chase Marvel. I won't I'll wait wait for them to come to me with something or I mean Namor was something where like I pitched it to Marvel, but like I was already kind of in the door and you know, working with Tom. But like Star Trek was something where I was literally writing every new editor of IDW who was taking over Star Trek as soon as they came on. Like <laughs> it would be like within a day of a new editor starting at Star Trek, I would write, introduce myself. Anytime you want a Star Trek book, I'm there. Let me know. I have ideas, you know, just that normal, like, writer, blind. And, you know, they were all very nice. But, like, um, I even did the same thing to Heather Antos when she came. And she was like, well, I'm still getting my feet underneath me. But but it was really, you know, Jackson and Colin and their team, like Jody Hauser, who is a writer I love. But, like, um, just so many great folks on that team did year five. And year five was one of the best Trek things period that I've seen done um, post, you know, this, the, the fillet of Star Trek, which I would, I would suggest would be TOS in the three shows in the nineties. Um, but like, and nothing to say, nothing against the, the later shows. There's some amazing stuff in those too, but like that, that kind of fillet, and like year five was like, oh my God. I mean, just incredible. Um, and uh, and then, you know, I, I just bought, I would, I just talked about it on, on Twitter. I was like, this book is incredible. You know, and I started to get to know Jackson that way and Colin too. And, and then, um, you know, Jackson and I got, got dinner and, you know, it was hilarious because Jackson and Colin, I had pitched on Captain America too, taking over the main book after United States of Captain America, my my kind of bridge series, mm-hmm. ta book to their book. And I, you know, I got I got kind of canned on, on my pitch, um, but Jackson and Colin got it. And so it was great. But I, you know, they came at me and Heather came at me saying, hey, you want to talk Star Trek? And they had they had they. Heather had this brainchild of like building a full shared universe of comics, very much like how she did with Star Star Wars during her time at Marvel. And I was like, this is great. And so like those guys pitched me their book, which was just called Star Trek. So it's the flagship book. And it was great. And it also just felt like fantasy football, but for Star Trek with the cast and the crew. Right. Um and they said, we want to do a second book that spins out where kind of Worf and Cisco kind of go at it. They're not buds. And, uh, it's, you know, Worf strikes out on his own. And and they had some very high level suggestions, but to their great credit, they let me go off and and build that into what I wanted. And that's I came up with the idea of Dirty Dozen in the Star Trek universe. And that's what my book is, where there's no Star War- there's no Starfleet uniforms. And it really is about people who are at once divided so you got Worf raised by human parents. You got Velana Torres, who's half human, half Klingon. You got Spock, who's half human, half uh, Vulcan. Um, you got Roe Laren, who is at once a Starfleet officer and a, a Maquis spy defector. Um, and still others that are to come that haven't been revealed yet. 
um, all of them kind of together looking for second chances. Lore is in there. That's another character who is of divided, you know, nature where he is almost identical to his heroic brother Data and yet has these kind of amoralist slash villainous tendencies. Um, but it's a book about second chances. It's a book about it's a book about making good on what you thought you might be. And I think that's the book's reason to be more than the Trek of it all. At the same time, I think we're also building a Trek book that is just, this word can sometimes be pejorative, but like it's dense in a way that Trek should be dense. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's not too dense, but it's like, it's, it's like, it's, it's rich and like it's Trek. And I feel like we are making, we're just literally on hell who came over from Iron Man with me is doing the best work I've ever seen him do ever. And he's doing covers for the first time and they're incredible. And like our colorist, like Clayton coming in and doing our letters, like um, it just looks so good. And it is so much Trek in its DNA that it's kind of like if Star Trek were a furniture store, which is a weird analogy. <laughs> Star Trek were a furniture store. I feel like Jackson and Colin, me, and the artists were making the best top-notch quality Star Trek for furniture, handmade from the ground up. Like, you know, some people might look at it and go like, that's ah, a comic book about Star Trek. But like, I think it's like, this is the best comic book. This is the best kind of comic book about Star Trek that you can get. Like this is this is everything you want in a Star Trek comic book. And you know, there have been those in the past. They've been one shots, they've been this, they've been scattered, fragmented, not connected. You know, the gold key covers I love and collect, you know, even if the stories don't really promise that on the inside. <laughs> but like this is like Trek crap handcrafted by people who love Trek and love dramatic story. And so I think we're getting something really special. And by the time, and the books are connected. And by the time we get to the summer and we do our crossover event, which is called Day of Blood and the cast get all mixed up between the books. Like, man, if you love Star Trek, you, you, you know, save some cash up because you're going to be, you know, spending, you know, 30, 40, 50 bucks at the, at the, at the comic book shop each month, you know, through the summer, um, you know, even through like lower deck stuff. I mean, like, and we're trying to touch all worlds in this. Like it really is just like you have a shared immersive universe. Why not tap into that? Trek has been open to that. IDW has facilitated that. And Jack, it's like, you know, the writer's room I did for the crossover event with Jackson and Colin, one of the, some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. Just, and I've been in a lot of writer's rooms, like, God, what a fun thing. We broke five issues in two days and it was just a dream come true. It was so cool. Yeah, I really do feel like it. it's something special. And not to say that any of the other Star Trek stuff that's come out in the past hasn't been good, but it didn't necessarily feel like it was in canon or it was additive. You know, it was kind of like, well, I'm a Star Trek fan. Let me go pick up the DC Star Trek book. And it kind of has the same feel. But man, you guys, like you said, you're bringing in all these characters. And when I saw the cover, I'm like, okay, so Worf's splitting off from Theseus. And wait, Data too? And then I read the solicit. I'm like, oh wait, no, it's lore. And yeah. Data's my favorite. Data's Data's my favorite Star Trek character. Me too. I, I have a I have a data, I have a Playmates Data doll on my dash. My kids call him my dashboard data. <laughs> um, I love data. Um, but yeah, so I was like, and and but data's in the flagship book. He's in Star Trek. Yeah. He's Cisco's first officer. So I was like, 
well, I want lore. You know what I mean? And so yeah. like, that's well, well, that's, well, that's what I was going to say. Like when I, when, so I thought it was data when I saw the cover initially, but then I found out it was lore. And then I realized I'm even more excited that it's lore because we've had a lot of data stories. Mm-hmm. We haven't had a lot of lore stories. You're mm-hmm. great at working with people that live in that gray area. Maybe, you know, lean more yeah. toward a, a villain, you know, yeah. lore certainly has those tendencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm like super excited for that. And to go back to your point about it being a dense book or a rich book, that's what's so great about it, right? We get more lore stories. We get more Roe Laren stories. These are characters that are, that are interesting that maybe, you know, because they weren't the main characters, we didn't get as much of their stories on the TV show. So again, perfect medium yes. to dig in, right? Yes, absolutely. It's a perfect medium. I think that that's, that's the thing. And like, I, you know, looking over the first issue, which we have comps up now, and it's like, it's, it is, it's just, it's dense and rich in a way that you want Star Trek to be dense and rich. I mean, like when I pick up a Star Trek novel, I don't want it to be light fluff. I know what I want it to be. And like, I think we make good on some like big heady ideas. That's mostly happening in the, in the Trek book that Jackson and Colin are, are running with Ramon. Like, but like Angel and Angel and me are like, let's do a five page shootout in an Orion pirate ship. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, why not? that's also Star Trek and it's great. You know what I mean? Like that's what we want. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Uh, well, for those not reading Briar, uh, your dark take on a, uh, kind of the sleeping beauty myth or, uh, or legend or fairy tale, however you want to put it feels very different from anything you've, you've done. Anything you want to let listeners know about, about Briar? Yeah. Um, you know, Briar, Briar is, is a book that like, I've actually been trying to put together since, oh shit, man. Like I would say like, I want to say January, 2020, I was on the, I would take the train to work and I was putting together the pitch for Briar and, and, and I took it to Karen Berger, who still remains one of my favorite editors of all time and did my first book. She could fly. And I was like, what do you think about this? And I think ultimately for her, you know, as the founder of Vertigo and all of the other kind of amazing stuff she's doing with Burger books, like Salamandry, like the, the INJ Colbert book that just came out, like, um, she was like, ah, it just feels like it feels a little straight down the middle, which I don't fault her for. But I just thought it was such a rich, fun story that could live and breathe that fantasy genre while also subverting it. And so, you know, it, it kind of just sat on my hard drive until the pandemic hit. And then, you know, um, Eric Harburn at Boom kind of uh, reached out and he said, what, what do you want to do? And I started taking on a bunch of books during the pandemic because I wasn't shooting anything. And I was like, are we ever going to shoot anything again? <laughs> and, you know, we ended up doing my crime book regarding the matter of Oswald's body before that, which was kind of about the JFK conspiracy in a fun way. But he was like, we want to do both of these. And it was always very clear from Boom that we wanted to do both. So now I've been working with him and Alison Gronowitz, who are both fantastic editors, building this total subversion of of this fairy tale and i think that it's there's no mistake that the fairy tale itself is about someone who wakes up thought the world was one way and discovers that the world is actually very much chaotically another way a way that does not care about her and and in a lot of ways is more dangerous more difficult and harder to survive in 
And I'm, I think that even though I started writing this book before the pandemic, it's a book in some ways, not all, but there are definitely just kind of through lines that you parallels that you could really draw to the pandemic in this book, which is like, you know, you think your life is headed this one way. And then one day you just totally fall out of your own narrative and you're no longer the protagonist. And that's that. And that's Briar. And it's like, what do you do then? You know, like, how do you survive? How do you, how do you make your own story? And it's very much a, um, it's very much a rebuttal of the chosen one stories, mm-hmm. right? It's not Harry Potter. It's not, he has the mark. He's faded to face Voldemort. It's none of that. It's like, I thought I was one thing and I'm not. So what am I now? And no one's going to tell me and no one really gives a shit. It's actually up to me to decide what that is. Um, and so it's really just like the radical um audacity and intimidation behind having true free will in your life right where you're like i guess i could be anything i could be dead tomorrow i could be this i could be that um what do i want to be um it's something i never considered because my life was kind of spoon-fed to me until i fell asleep so like all of those things are part of it and and working with german has been phenomenal the work he's doing is just absolutely gorgeous um and it's 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 been a really fun book to build it's a bi-monthly book so we we feel we feel lucky in that like you know german gets two months to really build that issue and then we we move on to the next one but we're gonna get to tell it for quite a while and um i'm very excited about it i'm just really happy with the way it turns out and I, I've never done a fantasy story. I wanted to do a fantasy story. And this very much feels like the fantasy stories of the fantasy stories that I've kind of loved, whether it be Bone or Coda or some of those books I read when I was younger. Um, but it's also very much its own thing, you know. And so it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun working on it. Yeah. It's, what I have loved about it so far, there's two issues out everybody so far. That the first issue kind of sets up, reminds everybody, hey, what what is the fairy tale of Sleeping Beauty? Subverts it. We meet Briar Rose. She wakes up. The world, like Christopher said, is not what she thinks it is. In the second issue, it really takes off because so oftentimes in story, we're used to getting three quarters of the way through it before somebody who's in that situation sort of grabs life by the horns, you know, makes yeah. that sort of turn, makes that decision. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to let this beat me down. It's only a second issue and she's she's choosing to have agency. She's choosing to, to make a change. She's like, screw all you people that think it's, th- it's this. Yeah. I'm, I don't care if you, you know, I don't give she's a shit. I'm going to make it something else. Like she's looking she for just, a place. Yeah. Like she's, looking, she's looking for, she doesn't have a place anymore. Her family's gone. Everything's gone. Her home is gone and she's looking for a place. And I think what she's going to start to realize is that she has to forge the place out of, out of nothing. You know what I mean? Like she, she has to be like, it's me or it's me or nothing. And, and, and we'll get there. We'll get there in a few issues. I think by four, you know, she's going to start really taking a stand. And I think that'll be a big shifting point for the character. It'll be an inflection point for her. For sure. Uh, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, Chris, it's been great chatting. It's been great catching up. We always have the yeah. best conversations. Uh, hopefully I'll 
we'll spend some some time together in person soon. Uh, so yeah. everybody, definitely give Chris a follow. I'll put a link to his uh, his Twitter in the show notes at if Cantwell uh, on Twitter. And I gotta ask, as we are closing down here with three young kids at home, I know you're a fan of uh, It's a Wonderful Life and and Christmas time. Is Christmas just wild and crazy in the Cantwell household? What are some of the traditions you're starting up? Give us a <laughs> yes. I've been writing, I've been wrapping presents while we've been talking this entire <laughs> time. I don't even know if I'll get it all done before the family comes home from making Christmas cookies at a grandma's house. But man, that that plus the sickness, plus the kids' ages, they're all so different. It's crazy. Like I, I love our decorations, I love our tree, I love getting all that stuff up. It's important to us. But at the same time, man, I you're catching me at a time when I'm like, I don't know, like I I I feel like Christmas morning, I'm gonna be sitting there in my matching pajamas, and everyone's gonna be opening all the cool stuff, and I'm probably just gonna have silent tears streaming down my face, which <laughs> are at once like happy that everybody made it, happy that people like what they're they have as presents, and to just just my own things going on, given all the emotional uh, tumultuousness of the last three weeks. Um, yeah, it's it's a ride. It's a ride for sure. And we, you know, I we live in an old house on this uh, boarding school campus, and it is very much three twenty Sycamore. I mean, we got leaks. Like <laughs> my, my kid, my kid pulled the garage door open, and the garage door just came off in his hand. You know, uh, these doors come off like this happens. It's it's, uh, you know, it's it's very much it's very much 320 Sycamore. So uh, but we're making we're making a go of it. We're making a go of it. Well, as those boys get older, uh, it'll only be more fun as they take some burdens off. Pretty soon it'll be, hey, the garage door is broken. Go fix it. Hey, your mom needs you to run to the store and get some bread or. Yeah, like but I I will look like Steve Rogers at the end of Avengers. (laughs) That's what I will look like. And I, I will be, I will be totally out of it. I just, I passive, you do it or it's not getting done. I feel like that's where I'm headed. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, uh, again, everybody highly recommend Chris's books. Go check them out. Link in the show notes to his social media. Be sure you follow his work. And uh, yeah, as we're winding down, anything else to to add here, Chris? Well, Jace, I mean, do you think Dansby Swanson is going to be a good addition to the Cubs? I think the Cubs need more than Dansby. I think maybe <laughs> I think I think maybe they should have spent a little bit on the what about, starting what rotation. About Corey Bellinger with Corey Bellinger, which is like you park a really nice Lexus that's used in the outfield, and you go, "That's a nice Lexus." And then someone goes, "How much you pay for that thing?" And then you tell them, and they go, "Holy shit, how much?" Right? And it's a lease. Yeah. So that's I. I'm I'm with you. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping Cooper and Leo and I see you in Arizona in March. That would be nice. Yeah, that would be uh, fantastic. Definitely look forward to that. And yeah, I mean, it's not like the Rangers are in any better shape. They spent so much money on starting pitchers that may or may not spend most of the season on the injured list. So I know you got a lot of really good, really injured pitchers. Yeah. So yeah, I I asked Ron Mars is a huge Mets fan. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. Obviously, that's where Degrom came from, and so first thing I did after I was like, "So should I be excited about this? Is this guy really legit?" And it, yeah, his immediate response: "He's great when he's healthy." Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Although he's got uh, he's got Correa, so we'll see what happens, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think yeah. the Giants might have dodged a bullet there, but yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, everybody, again, Merry Christmas! Thank you for spending part of your uh, holiday season with with us. Uh, hope you enjoyed the the Peru political talk and the baseball chat. <laughs> <laughs> Go read some comics. Pick up Chris's stuff. It's it's really great. Uh, and if you've never seen his incredible work along with Chris Rogers and an incredible cast and amazing crew, Halt and Catch Fire, still one of my favorite shows of all time. So, uh, yeah, best to the family, my man. Tell everybody I said hi. You too. And, uh, and Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas, Jace. Thanks, man. To you listeners, thanks again for joining us. And we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.